All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucksters? What the fuckettes? How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Today is Thursday. If you're downloading and listening on the day it comes out, today is New Year's Eve. Tomorrow, Friday, the beginning of a new year. It doesn't feel like it usually does, does it? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I I spent a few hours today, a little time yesterday, trying to figure out, you know, what to say. Do I have a list? Is there a a top 10 of 2020? Is there a, a countdown of bullshit this, fuck that, that? This or that? What's trending now? What are my thoughts on? What are my likes and dislikes? 2020. What do we do with it? I think for a lot of us, there's no reason to necessarily get involved with the pop culture rationalization or distraction or relief attempts at uh, contextualizing this last year on an entertainment level, on a recipe level, on a pop culture level at all, is there, really? I mean, a lot of it helped us get by, but all of it seems like a blur, like a smear, like a haze. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted from 2020. I mean, I've never felt like I feel now for a lot of different reasons and i assume many of us have had probably the worst year of our life my body and brain is exhausted from distributing cortisol i'm worn out on a thyroid level from four years of the pig king chaos master and everything that came along with that i'm exhausted from almost a year of covid and belligerent irresponsibility on behalf of so many people childishness i'm exhausted by the fact that now after four years and a plague i know exactly who my fellow americans are and what many of them are made of i'm exhausted because i know who i am more clearly now because of grief covid Isolation, Trump, panic, wildfires. It's been a fucked up year, man. I mean, I know tangibly what happened to me. I know that I had to put two cats down this year. I know that someone I loved a lot basically died in my house. I mean, I know those things happened. I know the plague came. I know how it was handled from the top down, from my neighbor down, from across the street down. And I know all of us have had a difficult time. And I want to feel optimistic. I want to feel hopeful. 
I want to take this opportunity like we do every year to lie to ourselves that this next one's going to be a good one. I don't know about you, but you know what I'm hoping for? Some fucking relief. Just a little relief would be great. Sure, we got a little relief in early November, but I mean tangible. You know, walk outside, look around kind of relief. That's my hope for a new year. I'm sorry you've all gone through what you're going through and what you've went through this year. I I, I am. My empathy can only reach so much, but I, I do get a sense that some people had a much worse time than me. A lot of people still having a bad time. I'm grateful that I have some things in place that enabled me not to lose my mind or wallow in a sadness that could have proven, you know, chronic, disastrous. I'm grateful for my friends. I'm grateful for the audience. I'm grateful for the people who reached out to me during this last year. I've said this before. I, I don't know. I guess I'll say it again. I have a lot to be grateful for and a lot to be sad about. And not unlike anybody else, a lot to be afraid of. And we move forward. I want you to have a better new year. I'd love it if you had a happy one. But I don't know what you're hoping for. But I'm hoping for relief. Just a little bit of relief would be so welcome. Just a little bit of, okay, okay. It's okay. It's going to be okay. That's my hope for this new year, for some relief, and that it's going to be okay. Not great. Not even necessarily better. I just want some relief, and I want things to be okay, and I'd like us to be able to see past right now again, a little bit, with a little bit of excitement, hope. I don't know, man. That's a stretch. A lot of things have been laid bare. But my hope for us all is that if you can find some gratitude, find it. If you can find some way to frame the last year positively, maybe because of what you now know about yourself, about your family, the connections you made, the love that you found, how you took care of people, how you took care of yourself, how people took care of you. You can find it. Good. Be grateful for that. And I hope for a little relief for us all, a little relief. And maybe just occasionally the ability to go like, tomorrow's going to be okay. Tomorrow's going to be good. I can't wait till tomorrow. So today on the show, David Ritz, I talked to David Ritz. Now, David Ritz is one of the most prolific biographers of music industry stars. He's the guy. He wrote biographies on Marvin Gaye, Jimmy Scott, Aretha Franklin. He's co-written or ghost-written biographies for dozens more. Ray Charles, B.B. King, Etta James, Janet Jackson, Buddy Guy, Don Rickles. He co-wrote the autobiography of Atlantic Records producer Jerry Wexler, which is how I got hooked up with him when I played Wexler in the movie Respect. He's also written his own interesting autobiography called the God Groove, a blues journey to faith. This is not your average Jewish guy's story. I just found him to be a, an interesting guy who's been through some interesting things 
and he's met a lot of amazing people, and he's gone through a journey of his own. And uh, I thought I would talk to him. So talking to David Ritz is a bit of a musical history, and he, he definitely has some insight through all his experience into some of the great artists of our times. You can find links to all of his work at Ritz, R-I-T-Z, rights.com, ritzrights.com. This is me talking to David Ritz. Nice to see you, David. I, you know, I know we talked once a while back and you helped me out a bit with uh, Jerry Wexler, your friend. Um, how did that um, go, by the way? I sort of meant to call you and ask you, and I didn't ever did uh, you enjoy the process? Yeah, I did, you know, and I, you know, having read your book about Jerry um, was very helpful, and then talking to you a, a bit about Aretha and a bit about Wexler was helpful, and, and I think the director was very happy with my performance, but I think that ultimately, you know, the Wexler you describe, you know, in his, in the book that you wrote with him and also in your book, The God Groove, was probably a deeper dude than the one you're going to see in the movie. Well, because it isn't his uh, movie, it's hers. Exactly. So you can't go that deep, you know. I mean, you don't have time, and he's incredibly complicated, and, um, you know... He was, you're incredibly complicated. I got to be honest with you. You know, I had this book of yours sitting around for a long time. And, uh, you know, and I know you've written books about, you know, a, a lot of different people. Right. But just the other day... You know, I'm like, why? Well, you know, I've, I've, I'm going to talk to him. I don't like really reading books that people have written before I talk to them because it makes me lead too much. So, that being said, I read most of it. So I don't, I did not read the end. So we're gonna, you're gonna have to, t- we're gonna have to get to that naturally. But the, the God Groove, your book, A Blues Journey to Faith, is a great book. It's a ballsy book. And I don't say this about much, but I think a lot of it has to do with the things we have in common. Mm-hmm. I found uh, uh, you're not just a Jewish thing, not just a narcissistic father thing, not just the uh, black culture, black music thing. Uh, but maybe that's, well, there's a lot of things that we, <laughs> that we have in common. But uh, but like I said, I, I don't know how it ends. I, I assume that you have Jesus in your heart now. I think, was that where we were going? Well, yeah, no, I am definitely, I definitely be leaving Jesus. And that's interesting because that's the other thing we have in common. I don't mean we have in common that particular uh, word Jesus, but I think right. we both come out of the 12 steps. And that's how I got into Christianity through the 12 steps. And and the irony is that is that when I first went into one of three different 12-step programs that I've been in for the last uh, 30 years, if they yeah. had told me you had to be leaving Jesus, I would have gone the other way. So part of the genius of the program to me is to re-language um, Christianity to take the Christian part out of it. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's structural Christianity without Jesus. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I yeah. get it. It's it's the uh, it's the deeds without the dude. Yeah, but the <laughs> deeds to me are the dudes. I mean, in other words, the deeds are the dude. In that, first of all, I don't care what anybody calls anything. I I think our job, as we communicate with other people, is to be um, sensitive to their cultural history with certain words. So. Mm. 
I won't use certain words with certain people because I know it will kind of trigger them. Therefore, it's only out of ego that I have to tell you, you have to use the word Jesus. Uh, mm. You don't have to use any word. I mean, I, to, to me, it's about the brotherhood and the sisterhood of the 12 Steps program is all about uh, um, sort of allowing a spirit to wash over us, to hear it from each other, and to um, heal us as a result of embracing the spirit. Period. What you go on and call that spirit, how you, what uh, ideology right. or theology you adapt, I don't care. So I am, I am not at all evangelical, and I don't like proselytizing because I believe that proselytizing comes out of ego. You've got to use my language. No, I get it. So you're, you're saying that you know what you got to get hip to is God consciousness, and either you're going to tap in or you're yeah. not. Or, or, or don't even call it God consciousness if Fine. the word God is abhorrent to you. If the spirit moves you, whatever. High yeah, power, yeah. yeah, I get it. But it, what's interesting to me is that, you know, you're about as Jewish as you can be. I agree. Really. And, you know, I mean, it seems to me that you, you were born, where were you born? I was born in New York and lived there until I was about five and moved to uh, Newark, New Jersey and lived there till I was about 12. And then we went to Charleston, uh, South Carolina for a year. And then I went to uh, Texas where I went to high school and college. My old man was a traveling uh, uh, salesman. Traveling salesman. But they come from like your your grandparents were the immigrants? Yeah. Yeah. Eastern European, the traditional thing. What part? Did you ever track it? Nope. You never did it. You don't know where they're not from. Uh, from the be- beyond behind the pale or no, pale no, no. Of settlement. I mean, and- generally, I know the territory, uh, but but I've I've never done. And in a weird way, I, I I mean I don't care in a certain way because I kind of knew them very very well, and they were not articulate in English. And I I don't know. I mean, what they speak? I, well, they say well my. My old man's parents spoke English, very broken English, with a heavy um, Yiddish accent. Uh-huh. But their but their first language was um, Yiddish, and and do you speak and, Yiddish? No, I don't. No, hmm. I only know what the usual curse words are. And the did your parents? Of, did your father? Yes, he did, and he was good at it, and he was proud of it, and 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 I enjoyed hearing him uh, speak it. But again, I never bothered to um learn it. it it never even occurred to me so your memories of of new york as as when you were very young are very it seems very clear very clear because they had to do with jazz i mean in other words my first passion as a child because my old my old man loved jazz my first passion as a child was jazz and and i was born in 1943 so i still got to hear the Titans, you know, Charlie Parker and Billy Holiday and so on and so forth. And that's what really kind of marked my early life. And by the way, going back to, to Christianity without trying to kill it here, is that the two things, and, and we don't ever have to talk about it again in this interview, so I'm not trying to push it, but the two things that led me to Christianity were both the 12-step program and African-American music. Because No, I mean, that's clear, you know, and it's like, but when you were a kid, so you were in New York until you were five, and then you're in Newark, New Jersey, Yeah, uh, from, you know, from seven to 11. Yeah. But 
And your father, you, you, you wasn't, you weren't a religious family, no. were you? No, he was. He was one of the reasons I got along so well with Jerry uh, Wexler. Is that Jerry was my my fantasy father. Right. He was. Uh, I'm rich. My old man was not. Yeah. Uh, he produced uh, Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin, which my yep. old man did not do. He hung out with. Uh, Wilson Pickett, which my old man did not do, but he talked like my old man. I mean, my old man, and, and Jerry was an intellectual. He was a um, literary intellectual. And your father was, was too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they read high-powered books. They knew Einstein and Freud well. Yeah, right. Um, they knew, uh, they read, you know, Saul Bellow and Phil Broth and Bernard Malamud. It's and- interesting that that generation, right, of Jews, that, you know, your father was a traveling salesman, but the but the premium put on education by, you know, second, you know, first generation, second generation Jews to, to sort of like, you know, to to define us as a culture that, you know, you, you better, you know, knowledge is power. Education is how you get ahead because they're not going to let you do a lot of things. Exactly. So you better be smart. Right. Yeah. And also they were killers. I mean, they were intellectual killers. In other mm. words, part of why I understood Jerry as well as I did is because he was like my father. And if you got into an argument with him about whether, uh, Sonny, uh, Rollins was a better tenor player than uh, Sonny Stitt, yeah. or whether uh, <laughs> T-Bone Walker was a better guitarist than Buddy Guy, his argumentation style was to sort of destroy you if he could. Uh, I mean, it was On those a, important subjects. Exactly. I mean, he had to. And so there was a passionate... Um, antagonism as a conversationalist. Now, it doesn't mean underneath there wasn't, you know, love and affection. There positively was, but but he beat you down. Is that what he, you're saying? He, he just beat <laughs> beat the shit out of you down, and 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 that's one of the reasons why I could tiptoe through his tulips and become his um, ghostwriter. Uh, oh, who Jerry? He, he, but but your father. What about your father? Did he well, like? We, well, we no. We had um, a falling out pretty early on because I understood um, he was um, he was an intellectual uh, bully, as was uh, Jerry. Yeah, and and so I had to take him on. Uh, I didn't have to take him on, but my personality. Yeah, you have was, to as a when you're a son of a narcissistic father. At some point, you're gonna have to push him over the edge. You got to kill him off at a certain point. I, <laughs> and and yeah. I know that sounds like kind of straight ahead eat a bullshit, but in my case, it was true because because they will eat you up. Well, they and, they deny you a sense of self. Exactly because because they only. My dad only saw me as an extension of him. Exactly. That's exactly something we share, and that's deep shit. And, you know, realizing that is, is it's a weird and deep thing that, you know, that you're, you're just seen as an appendage. And, you know, when the, it, it's hard to see you as an appendage when you're, the, it starts hitting you. <laughs> exactly. And even in my own career, once it got off and I was doing okay and I was writing these books, he was never happy that I was a ghost writer because he wanted me to be you know uh phil roth or saul bellow or one of these guys yeah but he would undermine you no matter what you did probably so i think so yeah i i think that's probably true he was proud but he could never tell me that 
and and also he could never stop criticizing my work as being superficial as opposed to doing the Pulitzer Prize biography right. of of you know being. But, the, but either either way, it sends us out into the world, sort of like you know having they they implant a self consciousness and a self loathing in us because of our own judgment of ourselves. Yeah. And then you're kind of wandering around, you know, emotionally untethered, looking for guidance, yeah. uh, you know, from a very early age because your 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 parents are incapable of it. What what did your mother do? She was strong. She was a um, seamstress. She um, sewed. Ultimately, she became one of these people. She uh, worked for um, Sears or J.C. Penney's, one of the two, yeah. where she would get in the truck and come to your house and sort of measure your windows for the drapes and she sold drapes and she was a great um salesperson and totally unintellectually but uh, unintellectual but very very intelligent and very kind of practical and down to and cold uh, my dad was very emotional and warm and huggy and my mother was rather kind of distant and and um Ugh. but you know i'm kind of one of these idiots who believes that we get the parents that we should get, or at least in my case, I got exactly the parents who I needed. Yeah, to but have. David, I mean, like, look, I understand. You know, I I do that too because you know, honestly, that idea of uh, you know, it, it, nothing happens in God's world that isn't whatever. But the right. truth is, is that you you gain nothing from not seeing it that way. That exactly that it, they, you know, without it being you know, could agree uh, with you more. A regret. You 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 have to frame it like that way at some point, or else you're just gonna you know you're you're gonna have a regret. Well, but it's also helpful to frame it that way. In that my my goal is to live in gratitude because I think I get it. I get it. Yeah, no, no, I know. The only way we don't go crazy doesn't mean they weren't shitty. And in and and in very (laughs) important ways, they were shitty, and I can look at that and in other ways they were great but in in any event because i'm happy with who i am now i sort of needed them to go through whatever i went no, through and, i, I and appreciate were, that yeah and 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 so if you can get to gratitude however the hell you get to gratitude whether it is sort of a ploy like you suggest that i need to frame it that way which i don't disagree with but yeah. in the end, as I sit here talking to you now, I am grateful to my mom. I am grateful to my yeah. dad for being who they are. I That's feel right. that way. So your connection with, with um, jazz and yeah. you know uh, African-American music, black music at the time, you know, is something that you know, I identify with as well. And this was something that your father loved, and it was the jazz age. And you were, did you get to see a lot of live stuff when you were very young? Yeah, I did. I saw, um, yeah, I saw the Titans, you know, or to me, the Titans, you know. How old were you? Like your father took you? What, how do you do that? Yeah, he took me. He took me to Carnegie Hall. He took me to jazz clubs in uh, Newark. I saw a little uh, Jimmy Scott, who later on became a guy whose biography I wrote. I saw Bird and Billie Holiday and Max Roach and Clifford Brown and... And also sort of getting back to the religious part of it, as I look back, these were religious epiphanies. At the time, I didn't, I couldn't call it that, but I was so 
unmoved and so amazed and so shook and so by this early music by this early music it made me fucking crazy i know that you frame this as your journey towards towards the godhead but you know but when you're a kid you're just excited right yeah but you're also transformed in other words you are ecstatic i guess that's the word i was okay like ecstasy yeah so it is kind of like going i remember i got a um scene in the book where i go to an african-american church and it looks great in there. There's kind in of Texas. music and right, and you know, and I can't go in the church because I'm Jewish and Jesus is kind of creepy, and I've been told <laughs> it's creepy, and everything in my culture tells me that's not me, and yet everything is drawing me into that church. The people are happy, the music's jamming, and what it's taken me forever to understand is when I went to hear Charlie Parker at uh, Birdland or Count Basie, wherever it was, I was entering into a church, and I was an experience in ecstasy that was okay. transformative, okay. and that was lifting my heart and exciting me and taking me beyond what is the normal human condition. And I didn't know what to call that, except I had to go out and I had to buy every Billie Holiday album and every... Uh, Lester Young. And then when I moved to um, Texas, the big deal that happened to me was moving to Texas when I was uh, 12 and a half, because New York was all jazz and Texas was the blues. And I didn't yeah. really know anything about the blues. Yeah, so you went to the you went to the source. Exactly. And so when I heard uh, Abby Bland and B.B. King and yeah. uh, Lightning Hopkins, I understood it all comes out of the blues. And it's a blues experience. And again, it's a transformative experience. And the cliche is you play the blues to lose the blues, but you also listen to the blues to lose the blues. And then even sort of deeper than all that, we are in the human condition, at least for me, is the blues condition. We are born to die. So we've all got the blues, you know. Well, what, what, is it, what was it that BB King told you about his conception of Jesus? He didn't say that much. His um, he, no, he wasn't. Know, it wasn't he the one that told you that God had the blues. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, he did definitely tell me God had the blues. He sent his son, his human son, down. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that that in some ways Jesus was a personification of, of the blues what man. the blues. Yeah. man and then i guess you asked you know when jesus was was resurrected did, were the blues gone and bb said no of course not the blues don't go away yeah. they it's it, it just communicated differently right yeah yeah and 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 i believe that is true that i think once we embrace the blues uh sensibility of life i think we are seeing reality well that's also a great point another point in the book with the jimmy reed story you oh, know yeah. which i mean i would encourage anybody to to read these books for these i mean you you're like zelig you just sort of lucked into these fucking moments because of your passion for something yeah but i don't think it was uh, i'm luck um lots of you're, people tell me that but my feeling about it, I chased after Jimmy. No, I, I, yeah, I chased right, right. after Marvin Gaye and Ray and Ray Charles. Right, and I was rejected a lot by people who didn't want to <laughs> okay. hang out with me. So, <laughs> right. I mean, I just made it a point, like, hey, man, uh, 
I want to know who you are. Okay. You know, okay. Well, I guess luck is not the. I, I mean, I think what was lucky is is not that you got in that car with Jimmy Reed, yeah. but that you know he happened to pull out a razor and exactly. you guys and cut his girlfriend, and you guys end up at the fucking emergency room, and he tells you that that in order to understand the blues, you got to live the blues. Right, I mean, that right. was a gift, dude. I mean, no, that, no, what, I agree. No amount of persistence was going to deliver that to you. No, 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 no. I agree. And, and, and that's always been, it's like chase after uh, Marvin Gaye, the way I chase after him and getting together with him. But let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about the arc of it. Okay. You know, you know that, you know, the, this music gets you going. Like, you know that you love this music. You love all of it. You love the entire spectrum. Like, the blues and the gospel are what sort of come together to make the R&B and make the jazz. And the jazz comes full circle and pulls the Jesus all the way out of it and creates a new spirituality. I get all that. Now, a couple of questions I have before I... I go into the arc of your career. It's like, how much thought have you put into, I was just talking to my producer about this before we started talking, that there is a type of Jew that is completely compelled and immersed in black culture. I don't know if it goes both ways. I don't feel like it does. But there's certainly, you know, Jewish blues players and then also Jewish blues and uh, Jewish music intellectuals and Jewish civil rights uh, 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 proponents. I mean, the Jews have been, you know, enmeshed with the black experience for a long time in America. And where do you think that comes from? Have you put serious thought into that? No. And the reason I haven't is, (laughs) no, honestly. Am I wrong? No. Uh, You can make a great argument and you can show historical evidence for it. I I mean, no, it's, it's a highly intelligent argument. I have never put myself in, I mean, there are other Jewish people I know. Uh You know, there's, Peter Gronick, who's yeah. Jewish, who's a great scholar and a great writer of, I mean, so I can name a lot of other Jewish people. Mike Bloomfield, right? I mean, and I Peter Green and Paul uh, Schaefer, yeah. uh, whose whose book I wrote and who's a, a, a great great musician and a scholar of R and B and blues. And, and then rock. you get the great the great exploiters of the black people in the Jewish religion, right? The chess and and yeah. and. You know, so it, it goes on and on and on. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, there are books that have been, I think one book was called Rhythm and the Jews. I mean, th- uh-huh. there's been a whole, there's, there's got to be a hundred PhD. Of, but it's not just music, it's politics as well. It's politics And social, well. you know, the, the kind of, I guess it comes from social activism and from the initial kind of like uh, yeah. uh, Marxist uh, sort of social activists. And, and, exactly. Right, but right, yeah. again, the reason i have not that that is of not kind of primary interest to me Mm. is because my own experience with it rests in mystery Mm. i don't know why when i heard louis armstrong for the first time when my father took me to, to carnegie hall or when i heard charlie parker or coltrane or whoever it is i don't know why my heart started beating i understood I, I I felt this connection. It didn't have to do with politics. It didn't have to do with... It was a visceral, emotional experience. Um, when we moved to Charleston, I was 12, I think, or about 11 and a half. And I didn't... My parents really didn't prepare me for segregation. This is... Uh, I was born in 43 and 12, 1955. So I got mm. on the bus... And I sort of naturally went to the back of the bus to sit with the African-American people because they I was more comfortable. And yeah. I, I didn't have any attitude 
I was just, they were more comfortable. They And, you know, the bus driver yells at me, what are you doing? I didn't understand. Yeah. I, I, I didn't understand. And more than politics, it wasn't just music, it was sports, because I was an incredibly passionate uh, Brooklyn Dodger uh, fan when I was a kid, and that was mm. the Dodgers of uh, Roy Campanello and Jackie Robinson. So in my mind, African Americans were a superior race because the two things I was interested in, <laughs> yeah. which was the Dodgers and jazz, they were they excelled at all. All my um, heroes were black. So, and also you you brought up in a house where your father was you, you know uh, incredibly embracing. There was not judgment. Right. There was not separation. There yeah. was respect and appreciation. Yeah, and and also I, I I'm not particularly political. So so yeah. so I mean you know I'm a liberal um, um, Democrat, but I'm not. I was never an activist. I've been, you know, writing forever, um, and 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 so anyway. What did you set out to do, though? I mean, the writing seemed to, you know, kind of overtake you. Well, I began, you know, I, I've got kind of a weird history. In the beginning, um, I went to graduate school at the State University of New York at Buffalo with this guy, uh, Leslie um, Fiedler, who is a kind of a well-known critic and um, a uh, famous guy in, in the world of uh, Jungian uh, criticism, and I sort of wanted to become him. So mm. I got an MA, and I, I went through a PhD program, and I passed my PhD world, but I never wrote my dissertation. I got tired of academics. I didn't feel like I was a true academic, and I moved to Dallas, and, and I began an ad agency because I wanted to make a lot of uh, Bread and you mean I, you moved to Dallas with your family and you grew up there and that's when right. you started right and I began this an agency because I kind of said okay I'm going to make a lot of uh, money right and I had worked my way through college writing ads and I was good at writing commercials and shit yeah and I did that and and some pals of mine and I began an agency and we did that for about five years and I got sort of bored I didn't care about the products that I was right. um, uh, I was um, selling and so that's when I began to think about chasing after Ray Charles. I went to the library. I saw there was no, there was no biography or but, but autobiography. What was, that, what was that moment, though? I mean, it's like it was there that you decided. I mean, at some point, you're, you're tired, you're bored with your life as an advertising agent, and then out of nowhere, you're like, Ray Charles is my ticket. Well, here's why. because And, and that's why, again, I'm kind of grateful for everything. I'm a good... I'm salesman and I can um, hustle and advertising showed me that I could hustle. So I just looked at him as a potential client. But you love but but you loved him. I loved him. I loved him. And I didn't love the products I was advertising. But right. I but could, you decided you wanted to write about what did you want to be his friend? Did you want to meet him? You decided I you wanted, wanted to write his biography and win the Pulitzer Prize. But then I met an agent who told me his biography is not as is not as commercial as his autobiography. And I told him, I don't care. I've got to win the Pulitzer Prize and be a biographer because I didn't know what the fuck. Because you wanted your dad to be proud of you. Exactly. And then the agent asked me a question, a question that changed my life. And the question was, what book would you rather read? A book about his life written by an egghead like you. Yeah. Or a book in his own voice telling about his life. And I said, oh, I would much rather read the book in his own voice. So my, the, the, so then the agent said to me, 
write the book you want to read, not the book that you believe you should write. And that changed everything. And even today, I continue to write the books I want to read. Right. So, but the, but this whole compulsive kind of process of chasing down Ray Charles. Very compulsive. Yeah, but it was like, you know, it was it, it became your your the, the the main object of your life and high on pot and and I mean I was nuts. I mean, I checked into the Hot Sheet Motel on uh, Washington Boulevard across the street from his office and uh, He's stalking the, him. I'm stalking it. I'm going to the office, and there's this tough guy named Joe Adams, who's his manager, who's telling them you can't have anything to do with them. So then I call uh, Western Union. I say, can you uh, send telegrams in Braille? And they said, yes. So then I start sending him telegrams in Braille every day about how I was crazy about him, and I loved him, and I knew everything about him, and I wanted to work with him. And ultimately, he calls me up, and he, he, and he says, who are you? And I said, I'm a guy across the street in the motel. And he I'm said, the well, annoying just, Jew that keeps coming around just, the office. Just come over. And I knew once I got in a room with him, he would uh, feel me. And he did. He could really feel my heart. He could feel my spirit. And I did um, love him. I mean, I mean, he was the artist. He was the earliest artist uh, uh, who had the had that kind of impact on me. You know, early Ray Charles fucked me up as much as any artist. And so it, it it just happened. And and I could talk to him. I wasn't intimidated. I mean, I was intimidated, but I could hang in there. I mean, I could ask him tough questions. When did you lose you? I mean, I, I discovered I was good at it. And once I knew that it was his book and that my own book, everything changed because I gave him the power. And once you give away power in a creative collaboration, you turn out to have more power because power is off the table and people are more willing to give and take and be free in the discussions. I get you. that. But like, you know, in that moment, you know, where you finally you know sit down with Ray Charles, or you sit down, you know, as you as you got the hang of it. Yeah, you, you know, you, 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 Smokey Robinson, BB King, Etta James, Aretha, all these people, all the way, you, you know, you, you, Buddy Guy, you wrote about everybody. And then, uh, but, but I, I have to assume in that moment, a guy like you, who's got, you know, your boundaries probably weren't great, your sense of self not great, you know, so your ability to kind of, almost in a innately symbiotic and codependent way, to lock into somebody who was, you know, uh, a self-centered but amazingly giving artist was probably almost innate. Like, he probably became an appendage fairly quickly, no? Yes, and also helped, again, by, by, by advertising. Because in advertising, where I did um, well, you have a client. And the client's in charge. And you learn the job right, is to please right. the client. So I'm coming out of advertising. Uh, now, the academic part was helpful in that I knew literature to an extent i mean you know right you know i knew but you ray, wanted to be close to ray charles i wanted to be close to him <laughs> and i also wanted him to know he didn't have to be scared of me because these people have been interviewed a zillion times oh, i know by, by journalists <laughs> who twist yeah. their words and they're angry at the press and, uh. and i kept on telling them man this is your book and and the truth is we translated it into Braille and he put his, you know, hands over the Braille and he made changes. And he was a great editor because he was a brilliant guy. He was a brilliant, 
brilliant guy. But he was like one of the, he was willing, not unlike, I mean, there's different degrees of caginess on behalf of people, public people. Right. But it sounded like Ray, you know, was willing to engage you and trust you. And when you did, you know, present him with a book that was written in his voice by him with you, you know, he he was okay with it, even with the darker elements. Exactly. Because he didn't give a shit. In other words, he (laughs) was a guy who was so confident about who he was. Right. And arrogant. I mean, <laughs> to right. a degree, I, he knew he was great. And he was the most confident guy I've ever met, as opposed to, you, you know, uh, Marvin Gaye was the opposite. He was completely insecure. But the first uh, book, Brother Ray, that was a big book, right? And, you know, it did well. Did they base the movie on it? Yeah, they did. But but it's, it's a whole long story. It's uh, You mean they screwed you? it's just a long story that doesn't have a happy that's not a particularly not a particularly interesting Hollywood story that you've heard a zillion of them but um, but all right so you do but you do Ray and then you you think you're going to start just you know you're going to be the guy exactly that does the by the the helps these guys ghostwrite their stories nothing happens exactly (laughs) yeah and that's where the hustle has to kick in, because at a very at a certain point, and you're exactly right. I thought everyone was going to call me. I had done Ray Charles's autobiography, and nobody's calls me. And that's when I understand that I am in the advertising business again. I have to chase after clients. I have to get some work. Yeah, I, I got to chase after Marvin Gaye. I got to chase after the Neville Brothers. I got to chase after this one and that one. And I. At a certain point, Mark, I also realized I enjoyed the chase. I mean, you are uh, the honorable in that you don't like to be rejected, but I can take the rejection. You know, I mean, it 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 ain't going to kill me. And also, I knew Ray gave me a lot of confidence because he's a tough, you know, he was a tough cookie. I mean, really yeah. tough guy. Yeah. And, and not particularly cordial. And so, you know, when I finally got... Marvin Gaye, who happened after Ray, it was the opposite. Like, Ray was sort of the tough uncle who was very sort of demanding and you have to be on your toes. Marvin was your relaxed older brother. But it was weird, though, you know, the way you kind of characterize what you're saying to me now. But it seems to me that out of the 50 books you wrote, or however many it is, about all these different artists. Uh Uh-huh. That, you know, you spend some time in the book talking about Buddy Guy, you know, you talk about BB, you talk about, you know, there's a good story about, uh, you know, Lightning Hopkins and the, the song about the stuttering kid that helped you sort of frame your own stutter differently. Right. But yeah. but it, it seems to me that Ray Charles, for the reasons you just said, was impactful, but that, you know, once you got into this skin and the life of Marvin Gaye, that y- your mind was fucking blown for for light and dark like you you were in i have to assume initially way over your head well i'm not sure tell me what you mean by way over my head well i mean like you know you know who you are you know you get a sense of who you are but so like all of a sudden you're with you're with marvin gay who is like you're saying is fundamentally insecure like you know ray knew who he was and he accepted who he was and you know and and i think that comes from you know, a lot of things, you know, get, getting through life blind, you know, and, and having, you know, I mean, it plants you in yourself in a way that you're not going to uh, have otherwise. 
but and also being a great artist. But Marvin being fundamentally shattered, insecure, a broken person, you know, with with deep, you know, deep seated conflicts around sexuality, around his parents, around his relationship with his with Jesus and with his mother and with his father. I mean, I'm just saying that over your head in the sense that you had similar problems, but through Marvin, through Marvin's journey, which was ultimately tragic and horrible. Right. Uh, you know, you were able to come to grips with some of your own stuff that was sort of hard won. But yeah. initially, it must have been terrifying. I was never terrified with Marvin because he was such, um, I got to do this right because it's really kind of a precious thing. But Marvin Gaye was, you know, I just did a, I, you know, I just did a book with Lenny Kravitz, yeah. who's an enormously charming man and a very sweet, loving man. Um, and Marvin was it, was in that category. I mean, it, now again, Lenny doesn't have nearly the turmoil and and and, and the kind of mishegas of uh, of uh, Marvin Gaye, but Marvin was. You just wanted to be with him all the time because he was so cool. Mm. He was uh, relaxed. And now, again, we were high most of the time, smoking dope and snorting cocaine. So, I mean, that's was part of it. And and I also think I didn't get sober till 1990. Uh, Marvin was killed in 1984. So our whole experience together involved not just listening to music and talking about theology and literature but it also involved being high and and yeah but i mean but this guy was like you know going down hard man well when i when i met him he was not going down hard when i met him he had just done hear my dear which is a great sort of masterwork uh and i was thrilled with that album this is the album about his divorce from anna gordy gay and i was a champion of that album and i wrote a letter to the la times comparing it to Charlie Mingus and Ellington and Stevie Wonder. So, I mean, this album was, and again, I, I adored his music. I, I adored his music. And then I adored him. So it was not, and, and, and the other thing about Marvin, which was interesting, even when I went to Europe and we had our last meetings when we wrote uh, actual um, healing together, Marvin was always able to stay oh keep me away from him when he was really in the kind of darkest periods of his life. Uh, For example, he told me, don't touch the pipe. You know, when he began fooling with the pipe, he told me, don't touch it. I mean, and he would never tell me anything. I mean, I mean, that wasn't typical of him. So Mm. he was very protective of me. Um, And, and when he did have these extremely dark periods, he kept me away from him. Uh, because I think he saw me as someone with the chops to write his story, and I don't and also he, maybe vulnerable to not being able to handle the pipe positively. And and chances are, if he had offered it to me, I probably uh, I you know I because you know now um, recently I've done books with Willie Nelson, and I'm doing a book with. Snoop Dogg, and I'm a recovering marijuana addict. I mean, marijuana to me was my main drug. Uh, yeah. And I had to go to MA. I didn't even know there was MA. Yeah. Uh, marijuana Anonymous to get straight. But I can be with Willie or Snoop and not 
worry about getting high or, you know, and, but back in 1982, being with Marvin Gaye and the idea of turning down a joint from him wasn't even remotely possible. Wasn't even remotely possible. But you didn't you didn't get involved with smoking coke. No, no, no. You did it once though, right? I did it one time, and uh, uh, and it was so good, <laughs> uh, and so every green light went on in my brain. I wanted to get on the roof and tell the neighbors the good news. Yeah. And it turned out that the person who got me. Uh, the stuff was killed after he left my house uh, in some drug deal. And that got me so scared that I yeah. never kind of touched it again. But that didn't keep me from smoking pot. I mean, because that happened in 85 or 86. So I continued to get high for another four years until I got sober in 1990. But I think what what you really characterize in the book for me, you know, and, and that we're not leaning on too much in this conversation is that, you know, the through line of the God groove in, of your book and, and, and in talking about working with these these artists was sort of like, you know, seeing your path to uh, spirituality and belief. And it seemed to me that Marvin Gaye, you know, and his struggle with himself, with drugs. And yeah, I mean, this is a guy that, you know, lost his fucking mind from cocaine psychosis and pushed his father to shoot him. And, you know, and, and, you know, you talk about the aftermath of that and about his father kind of like not, you know, forcefully, you know, intentionally not remembering killing his own son. But my, I guess my question is, it seemed that the reason I said over your head was that it seemed that the way that Marvin framed his relationship with Jesus in the midst of everything that he was going through in the midst of what, you know, was seemingly someone surrendering to the devil, you know, was inspirational to you or, or some yeah. sort of cautionary tale or somehow strengthened uh, retroactively your your idea of what belief was. I totally agree, because when you are with him, when I was with him, I could see the Jesus in him. I could see that. And when I listened to his music, particularly, you know, uh, what's going on is a Christian album. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, so that he is was a gospel artist to me and 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 you know there's there's an old dh uh, lauren thing that he said trust the story don't trust the storyteller and marvin's story as it's expressed in his music is filled with hope and light and love now it's also filled with turmoil because he's a blues artist and Blues artists have to work their way through the blues. But because he was a gospel artist, I am inspired by Marvin and continue to be. I, I probably listen to Marvin more than any artist. Uh, and I listen to music all day long. Which album do you go back to? Well, I, you know, I love what's going on. I love, I, I, I love, I, you know, I love them all. I mean, I like the concept album more than the um, singles. So I do Love heard it through the grapevine, but you know I love a trouble man. I love uh, uh, what's going on. I love uh, let's get it on. I love I want you, and and I particularly love here, my dear, uh, be, because it spoke to me so powerfully that I had to meet him. And my hustle Marvin story. I don't know if I put it in the book or not. Is that 
when it was attacked, because the album was attacked when it came out as being kind of personal and who cares about his divorce and why isn't Marvin talking about what he talked about, what's going on. So he was attacked by a guy in the LA Times. And I thought to myself, if if I answer the attack and I write a letter to the editor defending the album, Marvin will read the letter, get in touch with me and I'll get to meet him. And that's exactly what happened. He called me up and he went, who are you? And I said, well, I've this guy, I've written a book on rape. And he said, well, come on over, man, let's talk. I really appreciate your understanding this album. So now, again, I was completely genuine. I mean, and but 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 I was also wanted to meet him. Well, but yeah, I mean, it seemed like through him, you were able to sort of like, you know, find like he became the barometer of your ability to accept yourself because of your own sexual identity, you, you know, issues or discomfort, you know, through him, you know, and his you know proclivities around uh, cross-dressing and his father, the preacher's cross-dressing, which, you know, which almost ultimately damaged Marvin a bit. And, 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 you know, it just seemed that he, not unlike Jesus was the guy that, you know, you look to and said, well, if this guy can rise above this and 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 still have uh, God in his life, that there's some pathway for me. Yeah, I, I mean, I believe that's true. And what's also true is that, well, just take um, sexual um, healing, which is an interesting sort of metaphor for, for the whole thing. We're together in Ostin in April of 1982. But this is him. He ran away because he was so fucked up, right? Yeah, the IRS is after him. He owes his wife's alimony. Yeah. He's depressed. He was in England. He was in Hawaii. He hasn't had a hit since Got to Give It Up. I mean, he's at the lowest state of his life. Yeah. And he winds up in this beautifully quaint town in northern Belgium looking at the North Sea. And again, me being the hustler, I'm chasing after him. We got to do the book. We got to do the book. Yeah. We got to do the book. And I don't, you know, I've got two young kids. I don't have any bread. I don't care. I'm going to go see uh, fucking uh, uh, Beethoven or Mozart, which is what Marvin was to me. You know, yeah. I'll do anything to, yeah. to hang out with him. <laughs> yeah. So I get there and on the coffee table um, is this kind of S&M book of cartoons which is very kind of you know uh, uh, kind of disturbing and yeah. this tr and this um music track is playing on the um, the boombox and he needs a story to go with it and i'm not really thinking about the music track i'm thinking about this book and i say marvin this is some sick shit what you need is um sexual uh, healing and he says what's that I said, well, you know, you kind of love a person for for who they are and it doesn't involve pain and you're healed from all the complexities and you accept blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, you know, just write some poetry to that. Well, how would that work as a poem? So, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm glib and I write when blue teardrop, you know, and he takes these words and he puts them to the track, which was written by uh, his keyboardist, um, Odell Brown, and the song is written and in my mind, and this is what's so interesting to me and where I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head, in my mind, I'm working as a ghost. In other words, I am ghost writing for Marvin Gaye, yeah. his script. Right. But it turns out to be my own script. 
what I needed was sexual healing and acceptance of the complexity of my own sexuality uh, because one of my one of my primary addictions is sexual. Uh, uh, so it took me forever to understand that what I thought was a song written for him, which was, was also a song that became kind of a mantra of my own life. And what is the spiritual component of that? That the resolution of my sexual compulsivity mm. and my sexual neurosis happened at 12-step meetings that had to be brought into the church of the 12 steps that needed a spiritual resolution because I had, I had tried to go to shrinks and, you know, as I did with, as I did with cocaine and marijuana as well. I don't want to go to public meetings and admit I'm a sex addict or admit I'm an alcoholic. I wanted to go as an upper middle class Jew, I wanted to go to the privacy of a shrink, pay him $150 an hour, and get cured. It just didn't work. It just didn't work. Well, so, but, but, but in, 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 you know, that somehow Marvin was able to sort of balance, you know, your message with something that, you know, he believed that, that, you, you know, that, that sex and, and Jesus, you know, that there was not, yeah, that, that you talk talk a bit in the book about a, a few of the artists who, you know, you, you that initially there was something about gospel being sexualized by Ray Charles that it was seen as the devil's music, and then there was an evolution where it wasn't the devil's music. It, you know, all music is God music, and that that Marvin sort of exemplified this guy who was able to hold both of those worlds in each of his hands until he, you know, went out of his mind and decided that the devil was winning. So what impact did that have on you? Did, like, when he went I out of believe it. I mean, in other, in other words, that's where the Jew in me was great because, <laughs> because I had it, it, at least what I call, now, I don't mean this couldn't have happened if you were a Hindu or Christian, but I had the critical acumen to argue with him and go, that is crazy. You know, that, that, that Charlie Parker or Max Roach or Ornette Coleman is just as much a spiritual instrument as God as, as you are, or Lightning Hopkins or Charlie Patton or whoever. And this kind of, this kind of uh, binary thing is crazy. It, 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 it's an old superstition. I understand where it's coming from, but I reject it. And by the way, intellectually, Marvin rejected it. But from an emotional point of view, given his upbringing in his dad's church, he couldn't reject. He was, it. Well, it was convoluted because of exactly. child abuse. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, we argued about that, and I remember one of the last nights we were together in Belgium. There was a uh, documentary on Coltrane, and we were watching Coltrane, and this was Coltrane's kind of spiritual uh, p- 
period after a love uh, supreme yeah he's really preaching and marvin going wow and this is and you he's, know and he's really out there dude it, and he's really out there and marvin got it i mean he completely <laughs> understood that we were in the church of john coltrane and, uh, and, yeah. and so he didn't say this is you know the devil's music and and but but his childhood conditioning and his kind of trauma he was traumatized as a child I and am. so was uh risa and so was Ray, and when you have childhood trauma and you don't have the means to, you, you just need help. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but also like that in that community, that's not something you get that happens a lot, dude. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, well, you, you, you keep it you know, at home. Yeah. Well, in the case of Ray, he was so strong. That, well, I mean, but, you know, you're losing your brother and then losing your eyesight. I mean, those exactly. are... Exactly. But th- that's not the same as, like, a Pentecostal minister father fucking your brain up. No, but it's... Well, I don't know how you compare trauma. I mean, that's a hell of a trauma to go... No, it's a hell of a trauma, but... Watch it. But it's yeah. not, you know, it's, 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 not an, it's not abuse. It's not right. gaslighting. It's that's not, a, you know... That's an important distinction. I, I agree with you. It, 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 is, it is not abuse... At the hands of a parent, mm-hmm. uh, and and I right, and I think that's an important distinction, and that may be why Ray was able to live a relatively long life. But it's also important to remember about Ray, and this is a story that was not told in the movie, but I think it's an important story that Ray died of alcoholic liver disease. You know, he right. drank himself to death. Yeah, those, a- yeah, those junkies. It's hard if they if they don't they a lot of them switch to the the weird booze. Exactly. He gave up uh, heroin, and that's mm. the triumphant thing in the movie. But every day he mixed gin and coffee and five tablespoons yeah. of sugar and drank oh, it yeah. from morning till night. And and now again, he was operative, so he would argue with you when you would tell him he was alcoholic. Right. But they had. It's funny that they can't. You can't, it's hard to get that monkey off your back, like Keith Richards, William Burroughs. They all did that thing with the, you know, vodka or whatever. They had to figure out how to keep yeah. tamping it down. And I, by the way, I'm not sure I'm not in that category. I mean, mm. again, I don't drink or drug or I, yeah. you know, but I'm an extremely compulsive person in. In my work, I'm compulsive about clothes. I love clothes. Look, all right. So if if it's not making your life unmanageable, David. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But no, I just don't want anyone to get the idea that I'm cured. I mean, I am... I'm pretty, you, you know. But the other thing I want to (laughs) no, we're all. We just put it out. You're still fucked up. Right. Right. (laughs) And and. And also, I accept the fact that I'm a mess. And one of the things I like about jazz and um, funk, particularly, you know, I love funk. You know, I like the Ohio players. And I just and, talked and, to Bootsy. Oh yeah, Bootsy's a genius. You know, <laughs> yeah. one of the reasons I love uh, funk, and it, it is because it's a mess, and and it's a, it's 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 raw. And it's wrong in some ways. You know what I'm saying? And I think that is, I, I'm just going to be that way till I die. I think I am a mess. I think the human condition is a mess. And I think that's why we relate so much to the blues. Because the blues is a kind of 
messy music. Of, yeah, but of, the blues, the, the magic of it, and also like, you know, the magic of comedy. Uh, oh, comedy. Know, you know, having, you know, you've done a couple of books with Don Rickles as yeah. well, yeah. is that, you know, they are able to, there's a catharsis in the simplicity of the blues and of a good joke. And that, you know, if you can take the pain and the chaos of what it is to uh, exist in the human world and kind of render it down to a phrase or a one, four, five, or, you know, a few good runs of, uh, you know, well-timed jokes, you know, the relief afforded the heart by those things is magic. I could agree with you more. And, do you know, I am so glad that you mentioned that because, you know, one of my, because every day I write um, a thousand words, you know, I write a lot and every day I write every single day I don't take off times because I'm juggling four books at once because of my compulsive nature and my love of my work and I like to sit and I like to type but one of the things that keeps me going is going on YouTube and listening to Coltrane or Carmen McRae or whoever yeah. it is but also comics yeah I'll go and watch a George Carlin thing for half an hour and it's like Charlie Parker I mean Carlin is just a crazy genius and it's funny and, i never and, it's like i don't go to carlin like so much i if i'm going down the rabbit hole like i'll, I'll like lately i've been doing some rodney and uh, i feel that way about him I've, yeah. I've i've actually kind of rediscovered him in the last four or five oh, he's the he's I, the king I, of pain dude the king I of pain under, i underestimated him when he first came out and everyone did back, I'm going back and I'm seeing uh, he's a blues artist, man. I mean, he oh, is for sure. something. But I'm, but I'm also getting off on, um, you know, they got all the old Johnny Carson stuff. Yeah. So I've been I've been watching Carson with Buddy um, Hackett. Hackett. Sure, Buddy's great. Telling old-time Jewish stories and Catskill stuff. And, and that's a, a kind of blues genius. And, for sure, and, man. Um, you know, and then a prior, of course, without saying and and so comedy to me i agree with you i mean comedy to me these are sort of uh uh sort of uh nutrients you know we live in it's this toxic world that we live in and yes. we're always kind Heart of breathing in toxics you know yeah. we're kind of watching tv and this guy is toxic and he's poisoned our culture so that we need sort of nutrients to be healthy and not go crazy oh, and sure. to to me the nutrients are uh, Nancy Wilson and Richard Pryor and Buddy Hackett and mm. uh, Rodney Dangerfield. And, yeah, and, what I've and, been saying is you use whatever means at your disposal to maintain your sanity without hurting yourself or others. Well, and, and also, I put it up, you know, I think we kind of see things basically the, uh, I put it a tiny bit differently, which is my job, I got two jobs. One is not to go crazy. Yeah. And one is to make a living, uh, because <laughs> if I if I go crazy, I won't be able to make a living. But and hey, man, you might have to. Living, what if, go crazy? Yeah, right. What if you have to be crazy to make a living, though? And I think it's a it's 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 a controlled kind of craziness. So. Sure, of course. Yeah, yeah after a certain point, once you once you get the hang out of how to work your own crazy, you can fucking do it. What what was your take, you know, spending time with Don Rickles? What was your, like, how did you assess his heart? Well, I caught up with Don after he had lost his uh, fastball. Um, so it was challenging. I mean, you know, he was great. And, and you know, he's one of the kings in, in, in the Jackie uh, 
Leonard Milton Berle tradition. You know, I was honored to do it. it. It's hard. You know, I have worked with three comics. The hardest thing for me to do is to voice a comic. I'm not sure why. Well, I mean, because like you know, they've got uh, they've they've got a like. I imagine it's a little easier to, but not with Aretha, but it's probably a little easier to chip away at a musician uh, by blowing a little smoke up their ass. You could probably get a, 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 a an easier route to their heart, maybe. Whereas a comic is pretty well guarded all the way down. Guarded and also. Lots of comics, and you know more about this, so I should be asking you. I don't know. You know. I don't know if that's true. Comics have sort of a mean streak. I mean, I kind of think meanness <laughs> is an important ingredient it's to the comedy. Same thing. And, it's and, the same thing. Yeah. And I don't see that as a uh, as anything wrong or sort of negative. I think the expression of anger is important for our culture, mm. Mm. and 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 that's why. Uh, Rodney is great, and Rickles is great, Milton Burrow is great. So I'm who not, are the other ones? You did who did you do? Uh, Don Groucho Rick- is the angriest of them all, and Groucho yeah. was was a crazy genius. Yeah, you got to layer that charm on top of that rage, buddy. So, right, but under the rage, there is a kind of a meanness and a sort of a nastiness mm. that's difficult for me because under Marvin Gaye or uh, Aretha, even. There is a, a love and a so weakness and a kind of, again, a, a kind of a godliness. Childlike. Under, childlike, right. But so in Don's case, um, he, had, he didn't have his um, fastball, which is very important to him. The funny thing if, about Don and compared to like Rodney is like almost none of Don Rickles jokes were were great or written he was it was all driven by timing and 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 beats and rage but like you know like rodney wrote jokes i mean don you know most of the things he says don't even make sense no 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 exactly and it's all (laughs) the vibe of his rhythm and the vibe of of this kind of perpetual thing and so that i didn't have that because he was older and not well so anyway, I mean, yeah. it was a great experience. You know, I was honored to do it. Uh, it, 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 it. I had to go through four or five drafts until I got the voice right. And it's like you were talking about. There there aren't jokes. There's just this kind of rhythmic, compulsive uh, stream of consciousness. Mm. And on, on paper, it's not as funny as it is out loud. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, it turned out it was a hit book and made you. You know, I was happy with the whole thing. We did it. We actually, we did two books, and and I would love to do more comics. Who are the other two? Andrew Dice Clay, and um, Sinbad. Oh, he's and, a good. He's a he's a sweet guy. Right, and that was an easy book to do. He's he's like he knows how to talk about his heart. Andrew was tough. Dice was tough, and there was a lot of heat between us, and it was tough. But by the way. If you watch that bad TV show, Vinyl, yeah. and you see Andrew's part in it, yeah. he's a hell of an actor, man. No, this he's good, man. Really, I've talked to him. I know I know Dice. You he's know, I, really, I, I, really, really talented, brilliant guy in a certain way. But as a collaboration, it was not easy. But it, also, it, like, you know, you kind of, you know, you're, if your trick works, you know, you get these people to kind of, you know, present a well-rounded 
um, uh, a portrait of themselves. Mm-hmm. You know that they, you know, but a lot of people don't have the equipment to get into their hearts or or the courage to speak openly about their uh, bisexuality, like you do, or right. you know, or or you know, your struggle with spirituality and as a Jew, you know, kind of like landing on Jesus or 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 sexual abuse or or uh, sexual trauma as a child. So you know. There, there are just some people that you're never going to get there, and I and exactly. I thought that was sort of interesting about you know again with Aretha that you had this persistence and this not unlike originally with Ray that you know this was this was the godhead for you was to talk to her and exactly. and you talked to everybody around her and everybody that knew her about everything and they all told you she ain't going to give you anything, yeah. Yeah. and that's a dark tunnel, dude. And did you ever? Because I remember talking to you about respect, and you said, "Well, look, you know." Because they, you originally were involved, then you're not involved, then the estate is protective. I mean, in retrospect, you know, what was that experience for you? I mean, you wrote a book with her, and then you wrote a book about her. Yeah. Do you well, feel like you got to where you needed to be with her? Well, let me go back to me as a um, hustler because I hustled that book harder than any book. You know, I chased after her for eighteen or nineteen or twenty years. Wow. Because again, to me it was Ray, Marvin, and Aretha. And yeah. I just I just had to do it. And ultimately I caught up with her. And when I caught up with her, it was one of the happiest moments of my professional life when she told me, Yes, you can do the book. I was jumping out of my skin, man. I was up for nights. I was just um giddy. And I remember the first time I went to her house, I went there the night before just to make sure when I went there the next day, I wouldn't get lost and lose my way. And then everybody told me, like Jerry and her brothers, and said, they all told me, you aren't going to sort of get anywhere. She's got this wall built around her. But I was arrogant. And I was happy I was arrogant because my arrogance allowed me to do this autobiography. But my arrogance was, I'm going to be so charming and so sweet, I am going to kind of melt her, and I'm going to get the intimacy. Because to me, these books are all about intimacy. You know, they're all about intimacy. And I did not make a dent in her armor. I mean, we had some good times in the kitchen, eating food and she's a wonderful cook and listening to gospel music and listening to Nancy Wills. I mean, it isn't that we, yeah, didn't but she was good... trying to hustle you, man. Right. But there was, I didn't get to the heart of the story. Yeah. I don't think so. In either book. No, I think again, this is my ego talking, but I think respect is a good biography of her. I, I think it represents because it isn't just my point of view. It's a lot of people's point of view. I think if you read Respect, you get a pretty deep understanding of Aretha. And I'm proud of the book. Okay. Well, what was your relationship with the production that I was in? I didn't have anything to do with it. Why? They optioned They optioned my book. And, and, and also Hollywood, let me be sort of candid, Hollywood is not particularly interesting to me. Because, I, I mean, it's interesting to me, and I you know, love to watch movies. And, you know, but as a participant, I don't have any control. I'm just a guy at home on a computer. Uh, I have no juice. Uh, usually people, if they option a book, they option the book and they go off and they make it. And there's a director and a producer and no one's calling me to say, ask me anything. So I knew I was grateful to Harvey Mason Jr., who was one of the producers, for having optioned the book. And I know he had a high regard for the book. And I hope the book was useful to the screenwriters. But I have had nothing to do with 
the screenplay and have had no input. And I wish it well. I hope it's a great movie. I hope you're great in it. I hope Jennifer's great, and and I hope it helps. Well, she can fucking the, sing, dude. I know. I mean, she's she is uh, crazy good. So I hope it perpetuate. I, I hope it helps the legacy of Aretha. I hope the T the the. I hope that the um, television movie on Aretha is great too. So I mean, I hope they're all great, but. All I could control, well, I couldn't control the autobiography. So the autobiography comes out. She takes it over. She keeps me around, but she's really rewriting everything. The book is yeah. that, and I'm, and I'm not happy with it because I think it's very superficial. Takes out the dark parts. Takes out the dark parts, really doesn't own up to her childhood traumas. Um then uh, 15 years go by, and I just can't live with myself because I feel like I know the story. I knew John Hammond and Jerry Wexler. I knew her brothers. I knew her sisters. I did a million interviews. And I kind of feel, if I die, who else is going to tell this story with the intimate knowledge that I have? And, and it, it, again, there isn't anybody else. And I know her. You know, I worked with her for two years. So I made up my mind, I'm going to go out of my comfort zone. I'm not going to be a ghostwriter. And I'm going to write a biography. Yeah. And and I knew it would make her unhappy. And that's what took me so long to do it, because I don't like making people unhappy. Yeah. Going back to my advertising client orientation, keep the client happy, you know. So, so but I just knew that I had to tell her story according to my understanding of the story and utilize all my intimate relationships with people who are close to her. So consequently, I'm proud of the book um, uh, and I'm happy I wrote the book. I'm not interested in doing another biography. I'm still, you know, ghostwriting is my main thing. Yeah, but, but she didn't it. like, but after that, she didn't talk to you anymore. She was angry, and understandably. Right. And then also the other thing that it seems in the book that, you know, Marvin Gaye cuts you out of the loop on the royalties on uh, sexual healing, and that uh, that was friction up until he died. What happened with that? How would that resolve itself? Uh, I won the case because I had a tape of us writing the song together. Posthumously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won the case and have been a copyright a co-owner of the song since 1989 or 1990. And, 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 but that was an instance where Marvin was not well at the end of his life. He was not well and he was angry and, you know, there was litigation, but. And Wexler told you to do it. You were fighting Wexler. Wexler said, sue him, (laughs) sue him. (laughs) And I, you know, I said, I can't sue Marvin Gaye. I sue him. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, looking back, you know, obviously you've 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 got the hang of this, and it's what you do this ghostwriting thing, and you're sought out now uh, uh-huh. by a lot of different types of people. Uh, it seems that there are people that you uh, w- loved doing and did because of your own need to do them, and then there's people that you do because you can. Uh, like, you know, you, you know, it runs the gamut. Jerry Lieber, Mike Stoller, you've done, uh, you, you know, uh, Natalie Cole, Joe Perry, Buddy Guy, you know, on top of, you know, Willie Nelson you talked about, on top of the original ones that you were, you were compelled to do, like Ray and Smokey and BB. And now I guess my question, you know, kind of landing this thing uh, 
is that what what do you find in in creating these symbiotic intimate relationships with all these different types of artists primarily in music what is the thread between them i think learning to uh, um listen you know i grew up in a household where you waited for a pause in the conversation so you could interrupt the person and make your own point and win the argument. Yeah, I have that so, too. Yeah, you learn how to empathetically listen. Yeah, to, and listen with your heart. Yeah. and You know what helps with that? What? Fucking meetings. Yeah. Well, that's where one of the first places I learned to listen because you only get to talk for two and a half minutes to three and a half minutes. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, you just have to shut up and listen to people. So I think as I look back over the whole career, what I've learned is to listen to people with my heart, be curious, inject um, humor is incredibly important. I Mm -hmm. think, you know, I'm uh, 77 years old. I'm going to be... Uh, next week is my birthday. I'm going to be seventy seven, and as I look at and I'm enjoying old age. I love old age, and I feel you know energetic. And but I, I but to me, um, all this ghostwriting, and I'm doing more and more, and I'm um, uh, loving it more and more. The thing that keeps me going is loving to listen, loving to be curious. And loving to inject uh, humor and not taking it all that uh, seriously. Yeah, I think that's Uh, what we share. I'm coming upon that very same thing with what I do. You know, uh, Mark, most people who struggle with um, writing books and people ask me, why are you so prolific? I'm having a good time. I don't take it all that uh, seriously. It's a book. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. I'm kind of playing. What do you find all the artists as well? What What do you find in common that there? What do they all share? They are driven, mm. and 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 that's the other thing that keeps me going. I am driven. You are driven, mm. uh, and I'm intrigued by what is the origin of the drive. What is the nature of the drive? Mm. And the answer is, I don't know. And I love the fact that I don't know because I keep on trying to understand it. Why? Isn't that interesting? You're willing to accept the mystery of God. That's it. And also the But you're compelled to find out what drives people. But I'm also willing to accept the fact that I may never know. I mean, just take, take... you, I mean, you've done a, you know, you've done all sorts of things in your life. You continue to to be driven. You continue to hustle your way through Hollywood and blah 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 yeah. blah. Why? I mean, it, I mean, why didn't you drive sort of into a ditch? Yeah, as <laughs> opposed to keep going down a highway and I looking for it, it, right. And I don't know either. I mean, I, I mean, the idea of how long have you sat with yourself? It's difficult. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So, 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 all I can tell you is that I am grateful. I am driven towards yeah. other people who are driven because I relate to them, and I'm intrigued by them. And 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 um, in this world where it's so easy to be depressed and drive off the cliff and give up and not nice. do shit, people like uh, Philip uh, Roth. I'm going through the complete novels, ten oh, volumes. Oh, that's great. Roth. Where are you at? <laughs> Just driven, driven, driven. I'm, I'm, I've actually read a lot of the books earlier, uh, but now I'm beginning at the beginning. I'm at uh, Pa Ortnoy's Complaint. 
Oh, wow. Uh, which I just loved it more this time than I did the first time. But the whole thing about Phil Roth, he's never stopped writing. I can't stop writing. Why? I know. Yeah. You know, I, you know, sometimes I ask that question in two ways. It's not it's not the curious question like I want answers. It's like, really, uh, do we need more? Why? I'm glad that guy's got enough momentum and he's famous enough to keep working, but Jesus, not getting any better, is it? (laughs) Well, but also I think stimulation, I want to be stimulated. I want, and, 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 and I'm really grateful that I love Louis Armstrong as much today as I did when I heard him when I was, well, that's just magic. You know, you know, you you hear music, dude, and you hear music, when you're eight years old, and, it, and a lot of music just grows with you. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets deeper, it gets different, it means different things, you know, over your whole life, you know? I it's agree. A, it's quite an amazing thing. Look, it was great talking to you, Dave. Hey, man, I enjoyed it. I had a great time, and uh, here's a hug through uh, virtuality. Thanks, man. I think this was one of the better interviews I've ever had, but I was pretty sure that it would be. Thanks, David. See you soon. Okay, great. Bye. That was David Ritz, Many Books. The one that uh, I last read was The God Groove, A Blues Journey to Faith is uh, his memoir, but he's also written books with uh, or about uh, Marvin Gaye, Jimmy Scott, Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, B.B. King, Etta James, Janet Jackson, Buddy Guy, Don Rickles, Jerry Wexler. It's all at RitzWrites.com, R-I-T-Z-W-R-I-T-E-S.com. Again, uh, find gratitude if you can. If you can't find hope, let's uh, let's just hang on for a little bit of relief. Maybe things will get back to something we are familiar with, something comfortable, or at least at least okay. I'm hoping for okay, people. Happy New Year! Here's some guitar.
Kramer lives. Monkey lives. The Fonda lives. Shelton, 